You have to be an explorer, a scout, a curator, all of that. You have to draw from the sciences, you have to draw from disciplines that are brand new, disciplines that are ancient. It's the whole thing. You're listening to Your Financial Planner, Now What? The podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Today, we're excited to have Susan Bradley, Elizabeth Chaton, Carol Anderson, and Rick Kaler join us to continue the conversation we started with George Kinder in episode 115, that is, talking about the history of financial life planning. These are the practitioners and thought leaders who help develop what we know as financial life planning or financial planning 2.0 today. Up next, don't miss out on how important community was for their ideas, their personal development, and their careers. Well, thank you guys all for being here. So talking about the history of financial life planning, you know, before we can really talk about the history of it, what is financial life planning? Roberto would say it's financial planning done well. I would say... You know, the answer to that question <clears throat> is part of the history, and it's evolving, and um, we are looking for a way, I think, to integrate the different aspects of financial planning into something that's whole, that's sort of greater than the sum of its parts, and, and I think we've, all, we've sort of used financial life planning as a way to describe tending the whole person in various ways, bringing in the interpersonal skills, the communication to address not just the external resources of money, but the relationship with money. I would agree with that. And I think it's also a melding of uh, qualitative data gathering and goal setting with the quantitative um, data gathering and goal setting process as well. And I think it's actually through that that really engages the client so that they take ownership. It becomes a much more meaningful process for them. I think when you step into working on the personal side, the interior side, the human side, it also calls on the advisor to be different and to step up and to um, build a presence that wasn't required before. It was pretty straightforward in the early 80s when when I started that, you know, it was more about numbers. It was the training anyway. And we didn't have a discipline um, to be present, human being to human being. So it's something that is, um, it's, it's, it's driving the evolution from many layers and many points of view. And it is something that I think by nature is evolutionary. It is never complete. I agree with that. So this idea of financial life planning, when did it start? Where does the story start? For me, I think it's different than the rest because they were financial planners and then began to embrace a more holistic perspective. And I don't want to be speaking for you, but... That's my perception that you you really were drawn to having deeper relationships with your clients and really serving the whole per- person. I did not come from a financial planning background, but came from um, I definitely had some experience in financial services, but I came more from the academic community and also a real desire to see financial education throughout the country and was determined to be sort of an evangelist for that. And so that was sort of the purpose for my going back to school and to getting some um, extra education in adult learning theory and psychology and um, consumer economics and so forth. But I was very disappointed to learn that financial education did not equate to higher levels of financial well-being. So that kind of set me back on my heels, and I tried to think, well, what what does work? And so this is kind of, um, that journey is what brought me to this process of um, discovery 
and uh, qualitative data gathering and goal setting and melding lots of different disciplines into a process that really speaks to the client. And I, I feel like it's a exploration that's ongoing, you know, to really find out how to, to do it best. And then um, I came in to the financial planning community, the kind of a twists and turns, I won't go into that story, but it was delightful to find this core group of financial planners that were really engaged in this. Uh, at that time, it was still very controversial, um, but then there were um, many that were very eager to have a process for doing this. I think it's really hard to say exactly when it started. I remember, I think at retreat 1989, that we had a psychologist speak to us by the name of Nixon, I mm. believe. And I remember uh, walking out of that session just thinking, what is he doing here? I mean, we're number crunchers. We are, well, mm. This is dangerous stuff. Mm. <laughs> uh, I think that was well before 1994 when we say, when uh, George Kinder and uh, Dick Wagner got together and did their presentation. I have a question, and some of you may know, because I was sort of late to the party in, in some ways. I don't think I started registering it till maybe 97 um, when I started reading Money and Soul, the Money and Soul articles yes, in the I journal. And, and that's how I discovered Nez Rudin. But was the summit that Dick put together where Jacob Needleman spoke, was that before... Dick and George did that presentation? That was, I think, that was Retreat 1995. Okay. And the reason I remember that is when I turned 40. That was my four, I turned 40 at Retreat. Yeah, because I always associate that as one of those, those tipping point, turning points where um, a lot of this was bubbling, and I wasn't sure the, the, or, the chronological order of those two things. And Needleman yeah. spoke and uh, Olivia Mellon. And Olivia Mellon, yeah. Well, in 1993, there was a conference in Washington, D.C., and I just found the lapel button recently, so I know that it was 1993, the little flag, and it said financial literacy. I don't think they used that, but it was some kind of a personal finance summit. I think that's what it was. And there were quite a few people there. I, I would guess it'd be like 500-plus people, some senators and, and that sort of thing. And that's where a lot of the Nazrudin people met originally. And that's where I think where I first met Dick. And Spring Leonard was also one of the founders of Nazrudin. There were three of them. And then after, in 94, there was a letter that was sent out. And it was from the three of them, Dick Wagner, um, Spring Leonard, and George Kinder. And I really didn't know any of them very well, but there was an invitation. And I think the invitation is, to me, part of the beginning of all of this. And it basically said, we have an interest in the psychology and spiritual side of money, and we think you might share that interest. So it was a real open kind of, if you're interested, it had no real context, it had a date and a place. And um, I remember Dennis Means was one of the contact people in Washington, in, um, in Denver, because I remember five of us ended up at five different airport Hiltons, and he was picking us up at the airport Hilton. Well, we were at five different ones, <laughs> and this is before, you know, texting and, and that kind of, a lot of confusion. And we ended up in Estes Park as the first Nazruddin. But it was that the spirit of that invitation that said something bigger, something else is happening. We don't quite know what, but we think you might be part of the exploration. And I think they sent out 70-some letters. And if my memory is correct, 33-ish um, of us just showed up. And most of us didn't know each other. And that was in 1995? Okay, it? so that was after yeah, the Yeah, 93 uh, was the Washington, D.C. And then the retreat presentation. And then, I think that's what it was. Mm -hmm. And I we were using Needleman's book as sort of the starting of, of all of this. So um, 
he and John Levy and a couple of other um, white knights of this wisdom were around and we could look forward to them to help guide some of the conversation and the thinking. And I would say at the end of that first one, we decided who was in to continue the conversation. And that was the outcome, was that we continued. And, they, and it was never intended to have you know, a mandate or uh, rules of the road or anything like that, <clears throat> except for the very broad ones that, that we have. But it was that sense back in the late 80s and early 90s. And many of us were doing different things. And it was kind of lonely. You know, you, you were drawing something with kids or with women or with literacy or something, and it was happening. Um, and that, that thing in D.C., it brought some of us together. So it was, it was a need, an internal need that was spoken and then some organization. And it's like a good garden. You just need a seed and some soil and water mm -hmm. and you keep going and you got it. I was one of those people lonely out there somewhere sort of doing something and again kind of late for my own reasons to the community and that feeling of oh I do belong that sense of you know not being alone in those those thoughts and um, and to be able to listen into how it was being articulated mm. in a way that maybe I hadn't found yet because it's it was just me talking to myself and and doing something and I think that was a shared experience and you know I think we're describing um, what has been called a field you know that there is a field that it um, does have an emergent quality and they definitely these folks uh, read that field and certainly Jacob Needle Needleman's work spoke to them and they saw themselves and I think that for me, as you were talking, Susan, just to be reminded that how amazing it is that, that the Nazrudin community resisted what is so often the urge to create a more structure and mandate and a goal and a this and a that, but the wisdom to understand that the very thing we're dealing with here requires lots of spaciousness and messiness as a reflection of the the very thing which is the relationship with money so but but that took some courage and wisdom i'm sure at times to resist the urge to overstructure i think at times too there was there were attempts to structure mm -hmm. because it's what the culture does and it never worked and so it was an experiment and we just kept coming back and kept kept at it and everybody got whatever they got and it was enough to keep it moving yeah there's there's a lot of there's a lot of courage in that you're right there's another event um that i think was important it was very important to me in the kind of foundation of life planning and that was a kind of a think tank that Bill Anthes put together and I think oh, yeah. you were there Susan yeah. and Dick um, was one of those that organized that and so Bill Anthes was very intrigued by the life planning movement but he was very skeptical of it and so he brought together he invited leaders of this movement from two different organizations and one was the FPA and then others was the this International Society for Retirement Planning that I was involved in and that was how I kind of got this entree into the financial planner world. That organization was very multidisciplinary in terms of our financial planners but there were human resource, uh, educators, researchers. It was very small, but a very diverse population in the membership. And so, and uh, Steve Chagrin uh, was a member of both organizations and knew, um, knew um, Bill Anthes quite well. So uh, Steve was charged to bring people from the <laughs> 
community from the International Society for Retirement Planning community, and then uh, Dick was to invite people from the FPA financial planning community to this kind of summit. And our first assignment was to define life planning. And um, there, you know, several brought up ideas, and uh, there was a I thought a wonderful definition that we we adhere to in our organization because I just think it covers all the bases really well. It was proposed and then the whole group accepted it after it was discussed. And there was a great white paper written about that and I think it came out in 2001. Um, and uh, I, I thought that was pivotal. Um, it was still pretty controversial, but it was, it did a great job of sort of explaining it to people in the financial planning community that uh, didn't have an understanding. And I sort of felt after that the tide changed, was started to change, you know, that even if they didn't want to embrace it themselves, at least it was accepted and it wasn't as controversial anymore. I have such a vivid image. In 1999, at the last ICFP um, annual conference. George Kinder was the keynote was a keynote speaker, and he had just published Seven Stages of Money Maturity, and the room was packed. And he, in his George way, asked everybody to turn to the person sitting next to them and share a difficult memory around money. And people started to just get up and walk out the door, and they kept getting up and walking out the door. Wow. And I, I could be overstating it, but it felt like half the room walked out, mostly men. Um, you know, uh, those of us who were so excited to be asked to do such a thing were you know, hanging on every word. And I have often remembered that moment in my own moments where I felt like, uh, am I about to walk over the abyss with something? Of, of the courage he had to stand in what he um, truly felt in his heart was important, and he didn't respond to it. He just kept doing it, just offering. It was a gift. I'm giving an offering. And that in itself was just a model, a modeling that was really profound. But I often think back and think, I would not be surprised if most of those same people who walked out have been through the two-day, <laughs> seven-stages <laughs> workshop by now. I know they have, right? I think it was around that same time. Was it 2000 that NAS, that he did the two-day yes, at NAS? 2000, yeah. And there are, I think there were 75? There were 75. Yeah, I was that there. went through that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that I think that was a kind of a turning point too, because it was a real um, introduction to so many people in NAS of the two day. And I know from that we uh, had some trainings. I think you know where where you and I um, met yep. on the desert with George and and uh, just. Uh, seems that a lot of things started in motion around that time. I think that's very true. It, it, that was an interesting one because it was a, I think that was the biggest Nazrudin gathering up to that point, possibly. Mm -hmm. It brought a lot of leaders. I remember Roy Deliberto was there and he was sort of an, an unlikely person. Mm -hmm. you ha it hadn't really attracted the, the professional leadership in that way. And that that was a shift, um, and, and Rick's describing. You know, for for several of us, we then you know did a continued training with George, and that group bonded deeply over. We call it the desert experience, <laughs> but that in itself, it, it, we are telling a story of a garden that sort of seems to keep having seeds you almost didn't know were there. You know, sort of sprouting and dropping another seed. But that led to a group forming uh, called the Pioneers. And Dick Wagner was part of it, and, and Rick and myself, Marcy Yeager, uh, off and on Elisa and, uh, and Dave, um, Troy Jones. Uh, David Brand. D David Brand, Gail and Rich Coleman, Michael Smith. And uh, for us, that was our own... Um, 
place to stew in the juices. <laughs> we, we worked, it was that experience of, we're not a study group, we're here to work on our own. Our own money, lives, in a safe place. And also we thought that perhaps we were there to form, we didn't know, a guild? Kind of a place where we could nurture these things? We really thought we were there to create a thing and we went right to structure, I remember <laughs> early on. Oh, completely overcoached and facilitated, I think, a couple of things. But what was beautiful and organic is that out of that, certainly Rick went on to write wonderful books and collaborate with other people and, and bring new knowledge in. I sort of took the path into leadership and bringing this into the vision for the profession, I hope, a little bit. But each of us, we ended up not hardly doing anything together, but, but sort of launching in organic ways from having been in that relationship. And we came up with a lot of things to do that we decided we shouldn't do. <laughs> we did. <laughs> Should we go into business together? Should we have a certification? No. <laughs> well, it's, it's so, so there's a handful of things that are really standing out. One, this isn't that long ago. Like that, that's what's shocking to me. And, you know, we talk about, life, financial life planning now. And it's, I mean, most people kind of buy into this idea now. And I mean, you guys are talking about early 2000s. And I mean, that's, I was, I mean, that's, that's not that long ago. And so just to see like the progression of that's happened in the last 15 years. Uh, But the other thing that's kind of standing out to me is, you know, when there's really good ideas, like you're saying, talking about that garden, they just kind of pop up. And that's what's kind of really neat is everybody has their own version, not version, but their own interpretation of life planning. Did you, not that there were expectations when you started meeting together, but what were you hoping would be the outcome when you started meeting at the Nazarene Project? Maybe, well, maybe we'll go back to the 90s, like late mm. 90s, maybe. I don't think there was an outcome. I think individually we were there for our own reasons. Collectively, there was a sense of being nourished, a sense of community, um, lots of variations of where we met and how many people were there and who was the leader and all that. And it was always a volunteer kind of thing. But something would, it it was, uh, back to the garden, it was like uh, fertilizer. And, you know, it was just there. And you take it as you take it, and it it, what happens, happens. Um, Personally, for me, the Sudden Money Institute was created uh, late at night, and I am not a late-night person, so I was probably just saying yes to get out of it and go to bed. But Dick Wagner kept pushing uh, about my book, this sudden money book. What am I going to do now? We all know that's a famous Dick Wagner thing. <laughs> and I said, nothing. I'm going to go back uh, to my, my full-time practice. And we all know that that was never okay with Dick. And he pushed and pushed. And I said, here, you do it if you think it's so important. Here's the book. <laughs> I really was resistant. And he wouldn't do that. And he, he pushed. And really, that was in one night, completely unexpected to me, never had an idea of carrying this beyond the book. It was born. And that was March. And we had our first conference in June of 2000. So mm-hmm. it just took a few months and it happened. And he showed up. And he showed up at, at many of them and was a... Um, a participant, an instigator, um, a he always had a little bit more to do a little bit more, do a little bit more one way or another, which is at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a good thing. And I think that story, although that is my story, many stories like that have happened. And it could be a com- conversation between any group of people. Um, and it's, it's just rich. And that was one thing that really struck me early on was that these gatherings had no expectation and no agenda. And that was so foreign to me. That was so foreign to me. And I remember 
when, when the, the pioneers got together, built kind of on that foundation of, this is crazy. I am flying halfway across the nation to spend some time with, with whether it's eight people or 50 people, and I, the, I, there is no speaker, and there's no program, and the, the, this is nuts. How can this possibly <laughs> be productive? Going from that to relaxing into it that, well, I guess the most important thing is who's there. And I think that was part of Dick's original invitation was, well, the right people are here. Let's see what happens. This idea of community is very, I mean, can you all speak to that? Like, <laughs> the what community? Or just this idea of community and how, like, I mean, everybody yeah. has these own ideas. Like, I look, I mean, just with the people here in this room, I mean, the impact is profound on the profession. Would that have been possible without a community of other financial planners? No. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, and I think, too, part of it is there's um, mutual support and appreciation for each other's work. Um, there isn't a real competitive feeling about it. You know, it's, it's a, it really is freeing to have those kinds of relationships where you don't have to pretend to be something you're not or, or try to be protective or... Um, we can just, you know, explore and get lots of encouragement and, and be an encourager as well, so that it is key community. You know, I remember in the early days um, when I would go to my, I was with an independent broker-dealer, and I was so brand spanking new, and I'd go to these conferences, and the, the kings a few queens, but mostly the kings, were the high producers. And you knew them by their numbers. And you knew them by their status and the standing ovations that they got from whatever. Mm -hmm. And there was really no sense of community. It was just competition. It was, someday I want to be like that. And uh, what does it take to be like that? And that was the conversation. Uh, and to want something else, there wasn't a lot of room. I'm sure there were other people there that had that feeling, but it was never something that, that it was like trying to strike a, a, a damp match. You know, it just wasn't going to happen. So to move out of that, I, I went independent, but um, to move out of that, and find these kinds of communities. And really, the way to find them was to go out of your local area back then. And it was the ICFP um, before FPA. Um, for me, it was ICFP and then um, Nasruddin. Is, but that's where you found the bigger conversations in the national groups. One thing I would add to that is that um, there were clearly some folks in these early days of, of Nasruddin <clears throat> that were in touch with how do you have transformative dialogue? How do you have different conversation? It doesn't just happen because you can go be in a gathering of people and just lock down into what your expectations are and your assumptions about how you're supposed to show up. Uh, and so it takes different structures and those were present in Nasruddin, you know, or they evolved or they emerged. They weren't, I wasn't at the first ones, but by the time I came in, in the late 90s, those processes were there. Didn't always work perfectly, but um, the invitation continued that this is a place where we're going to honor each other and what you have to offer. And it was prototyping. You could sort of bring, I remember Susan bringing her book and, you know, offering that, that we could offer and get feedback or offer it into the whole and see what happened. But that that is a form, there is a structure in that. It's not nothing. Yeah. How to hold the space so that people can do that. And, and that speaks to something that's just been going on in the world that was also emerging and, and found its way into our profession to help us, I think, at the right time seems to me that that was another piece that made the forming of that community more functional and 
Well, is this part of perhaps to the art of hosting techniques mm -hmm. in the, the mm -hmm. training too? Because um, I think the purpose of those is, you know, how to have meaningful conversations. And it's very democratic process as well um, and very effective. So I think that somehow someone was exposed to it along the way and then adopted it, and I think several of us have then been to those trainings and incorporated in, um, other processes into uh, the work that we do. Uh, and, you know, and I just remember also when I went, it was like these different uh, frameworks for thinking about things. It just gave me so much more insight just because it presented uh, topics in a, just a and processes in a different way that I'd ever thought of them before. And the mm. light bulbs just started going off. And um, so I, but I think that's part of what Nazrin mm -hmm. did, did to it was a place to bring new ideas and share them with people and challenge one another in the thinking. So it was very stimulating, very stimulating, rich and that, place no, to it be. wasn't happening for us individually no. in our practices. Uh -huh. I mean, I, I'm thinking how important community was uh -huh. right. because uh, at home we were the mavericks or, you yeah. know, with our employees and, and with our clients. Uh, there was no place to hang out. It was also became so, a place we could practice together. We could learn by doing and talk about it. Um, traditional study groups, you really couldn't, it really mm -hmm. wasn't a place you could go for that, but that's sort of what the pioneers, part of what the pioneers were, and I think part of Nesrutin, <clears throat> was this is a place to bring the, the how-to, how, how am I doing this, how am I, here's what's going on, and I'm not sure I'm comfortable, the, the kind of working on self, but also the process around it. What's, what's mm -hmm. it going to look like? How's it going to get balanced with the quantitative? All those kind of things we still hear from the, the young new folks that sometimes come into retreat, they're asking those same questions that, that we wrestled with, I think, early on, too. Is it fair to think of community as a container? And as, like, Nazrin does have structure, by the way. Roberta Lee Driscoll, mm -hmm. Mama Naz, oh, yeah. has taken care of things for years for us so we don't have to think too much. So there is, there is some structure, but it's almost like you go into containers or tents, and within that space, there's an expectation that's shared. That's what part of the community is. There's um, a respect and, a, and a, something familiar. But even here at retreat, mm -hmm. uh, when you were leading the opening circle the other day, you, you built the container again. And it's been built year after year, but it's important to create that and to create, to remind us who keep coming back and to those who come in, this is what this space is like. And this is a little more formal, a lot of work went into getting all this together. But once we're here, it's a time to, you know, lighten up a little bit and, and have more deep-hearted conversations and not be talking about necessarily, you know, what your AUM is. Um, right. I'm sure those conversations happen, and why, why shouldn't they? That, that'd be okay, too. But I, I think, and at the Sudden Money Institute, we work on being a community of practice. So there's a give and take, and there's a shared work product, and it's a safe place to say, I wish I had done better on this. Can anybody help me? That's a pretty important thing. You could do that here. You could bring a problem like that to retreat. You could bring a problem like that to Nazarudin. And hopefully lots of, I'm sure, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the other ones as well. So I think that we build these communities abstract as they are, but it starts, as I listen to all of us, starts to feel like there's something almost a physical structure to it when it's not yeah. quite there. There's actually a word for that, um, basho, ba. Basho is both of the creating of the physical space and the energetic space that is the container that can hold that kind of um, energy. So it's a real, it's a basho. thing. Basho, like creating it. the basho. Where and does that come from? I'm assuming Japan, Japanese Sounds principle it. and concept. Ba, the ba. Um, it's also part of kind of 
the theory of dialogue. It's, so it's sort of embedded in, in all of this. So I love the way you describe it, the container. And as you were, as you were talking about it, Susan, I'm thinking that I, I actually think part of financial life planning and what we were learning in that community was teaching us how to create Bob with our clients. Mm -hmm. That part of financial life planning is creating a space, creating a container where safe, rich conversations happen. Because they weren't happening before, how do we create something new? And it's with great questions. It's with silence and deeper listening. It's it's setting the, the physical space. It's taking the few minutes before all the things we've worked with together in our different ways we play with this to to create space. So it is interesting in reflecting that what we were doing in creating our community was also informing the practice of financial life planning. Oh, it was very experiential. Yeah. I, I'm thinking, you know, um, a lot of us come from a very academic, left-brain side as I'm going to do, I'm going to do. And uh, reflecting about, upon it with the space and the community, which were words that were, that were very foreign to me, is it was l learning to be. You know, it was uh, uh, actually experientially practicing and, and learning how to be with people and to, to be with myself so I could learn to be with clients. It, it, was, it was a very different agenda from attending a conference. And, I mean, PowerPoints were almost banned from Nazrud. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. They were, yeah. I, mean, I, I think it was a wonderful platform for everyone to get more comfortable with emotion mm -hmm. as well, because it was a kind of a free space to explore that, but in very not a space that financial planners went into. And even in our personal lives, I, I know for me, um, because of family background and whatever, that was an area that, even though I knew how important it was on an intellectual level, there was kind of fear of emotion and being very contained. Um, so, but I think with having the dialogues with one another and exploring these issues together, that it did help us to um, kind of explore and push out our comfort zones. It accelerates our growth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the idea of being is abstract. Uh, doing is concrete and measurable. But when you're practicing or being aware of being, it's pretty solo. But when you're with a group that talks about it, you 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 can see into yourself your experience better from some of the of the outside, and you learn from the behavior of others or the option of choice with others. So there's a real acceleration in the most gentle way um, that that happens. It's funny I would never have put that word out there. This is a kind of a conversation that lets you look at something that look like a rock and you find out that it's a diamond, you know, one of those. <laughs> Exactly. You know, I'm just, just in sitting with this lovely group of people, it, we're, we're an interesting um, sample because we are all in this um, container of financial life planning and doing very different things within it, which is also its nature and part of, you know, the way why Dick loved to describe it as the garden that... Uh, there isn't one practice or model or process, which is kind of, I think, what's beautiful of how the way we talk about it and the language is evolving and how we're thinking about it, that um, it's, not, it's, not, um, it's not a one thing. And it has different expressions and components. And I think we're getting better at finding ways to talk about that and hold all of it together. Mm -hmm. um, and. And it will be very exciting to kind of see how that keeps unfolding. It had occurred to me that it, in a larger sense of community, there's lots of different communities, um, that if you keep the community's integrity but keep your doors open, there's a flow back and forth. Mm -hmm. And 
not only for other people who want to come in, but even for us to learn from mm -hmm. each other, mm -hmm. the, the continuous flow. And I think that's what protects the vitality. If you're all in separate, you know, tents with limited supplies and waters and, you know, in scarcity, it's mm -hmm. very hard to thrive and mm -hmm. to blossom. But if you have the free flow, that's when I think it just gets far more fun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's the attitude that really supports community, too. For sure. So we look at the time, 1999 was the kinder talk where everybody's walking out. We're, we're in 2018, almost 20 years later. How would all of you all describe the progress of uh, life, financial life planning in the last 20 years? Well, it's definitely a concept that's much more accepted now. Um, it's not, I would say, from my perspective, it's not controversial uh, that... I think most all planners would say there's real value to a you know a life planning approach, um, and uh, I think there's still a lot of room to grow in terms of the number of planners that they definitely are not resisting the idea anymore, but those that have you know actually have implemented a process that would be um, defined as bringing in a more holistic perspective. I think a lot of planners have the heart and the intent, but maybe not a real structured process so that all of their clients um, do get a taste or an experience of that. I think there's lots of ways to do that, but you know, the Perhaps it's a level of comfort with having those conversations. Might be holding them back. We're starting to see it push into academia, mm -hmm. which I think is pretty uh, critical for the growth. Mm -hmm. We're yes. seeing uh, certificate programs in financial life planning, financial therapy. Uh, it's very embryonic right now, mm -hmm. but, but we're starting to, to see that happen. Um, and just on a personal note, uh, it was mentioned in the beginning, somebody mentioned money scripts. And I, I hear that as a very common term, and I flash back to the phone call that I was on when uh, Ted Klontz said, well, yeah, uh, the, Len So calls them life scripts. Why don't we call them money scripts? <laughs> and it, just to think how ubiquitous yeah, that no, that no. term has been. And, and um, I remember at a Nasruddin gathering, throwing out therapy, the idea of therapy and financial therapy, and there was just like a recoil even <laughs> from that community, like, oh, no, mm -hmm. we, we're, we're not going there, and you know how that's growing in acceptance. So it's, it's amazing how far it's come in 20 years. I think the, the broadening of the interdisciplinary nature of it, it, it does draw, we're, we're seeing the, the application that really coming from communication and, and behavioral and psychology and social psychology and adult learning and change, studies of change, and all of that is useful and informative and, and just sort of does keep expanding that garden of knowledge that allows us to build practices and tools and models and things to put in, you know, new arrows in the quiver. And, uh, and this notion that, I mentioned it earlier in a session that I read somewhere and I loved it, it's not just having more arrows in the quiver, but it is, it is the archer, the quality of the archer that brings the power to the tools and, and being able to be directive and effective. And I think that's something we're all sort of saying in different ways, This, but that to me is more newly accepted. This notion that the, the being, the, the archer, the planner, um, and you talked about it, Susan, of, of having a role and, and having to show up and be different. I think that's, that's a, a more recent acceptance and unfolding and attention really being paid to that. We've talked about it for a long time, but it feels like it's getting cred. <laughs> Maybe. 
Well, it's, it's interesting to me. You look at financial planning's background, and it was about bringing in different disciplines into one thing. It was about bringing in the estate planning and the insurance mm-hmm. and everything right. like that. And now what's fascinating to me is I'm hearing the same thing about life planning. It's not, it's about how do we bring in all the technical to the psychology to all the various academic theories that are out there and disciplines that are out there to better serve our clients. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of parallels. One of the interesting things about it is that you can't create the kinds of things that we've all created from inside the industry. You have to go outside. Mm-hmm. And you have to be an explorer, a scout, a curator, all of that. You have to draw from the sciences. You have to draw from disciplines that are brand new, disciplines that are ancient. It's the whole thing. And then you bring back what seems to be useful, and then you play with that, and you Mm. integrate it, and it works, it doesn't work, and then you go out and you find some more. I think we're getting to a point where it, it will be time to, and give me some room on this word, <laughs> institutionalize, which is kind of um, contrarian here for this discussion, but to um, it, it 20 years from now, but more like two years or five years from now with the age of acceleration maybe, um, this becomes a norm. As you enter the profession, you don't just get one thing, but you maybe get others, or you, you adhere to, or you belong to different study groups, or you find places. And this conversation will be so normal, they'll kind of laugh that we made a distinction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that would be, be so. wonderful. <laughs> and then we would have been cathedral builders, and yes. it would be built, it's done. But for now, it looks like we're just one generation of putting a couple good bricks in there and Mm -hmm. and mortar. But possibly we'll live to see this be more normal. I can't wait for the day that I call some of you up and say, did you see that on the news? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the reference Mm -hmm. to the college programs that Rick made is really huge. And even though... um, you know, we can get CE for these topics, but it's still not required to pass the CFP test. But more and more, the um, instructors in those courses are really wanting to expose their students because they see that this element is really the key to their success as financial planners. So they're really uh, looking at their students as whole people and as professionals that will really be mm. successful. So they are introducing it into their coursework, even though they know they don't need that knowledge to pass the CFP test. Mm. And also those younger generations are so um, hungry for this. It's just, it's not foreign to them. You know, the, their those generational characteristics um, really jive, you know, in terms of, of what life planning offers them and um, they, they really embrace it. So I think, you know, in terms of what's next, I think, it, you know, it really will build and be, be just the way it's done. Right? And there's been the pockets, of it, as you're talking, of the training the experiential, because that's so different from the academic. And, you know, what Susan's created, uh, what you've created, um, there's certificate programs, um, uh, there's uh, the designation that that you've come up with, there's uh, a new designation of certified financial therapist that will be popping up. Um, We can argue whether the designations are helpful or not, but it's a completely different type of training mm-hmm. than, say, what the CFP program mm-hmm. has offered. And I've been critical of the CFP program for not incorporating more of the, the experiential. But mm-hmm. I just had the thought as you were talking, you know, it's, it's a financial component and it's an experiential component, right. and they both belong. Right. I just came out of a conversation, <clears throat> and this is a great kind of intellectual conversation, but I actually don't want the CFP board to take uh, to go too far into this. 
I don't think that's their job. I think they should own the technical. And I, mm-hmm. and I do think we've influenced, financial life planning has influenced them. They've brought in communication, but that, that's partly why. They are not equipped to do experiential, and they are not the experts within that realm, and they are not um, to be the holders of the whole garden of knowledge. And I have a real resistance uh, to them really going there a whole lot more. What I love is seeing it, I want it in the halls of academia. That's where I want it. Mm-hmm. That's where knowledge lives and grows and, and gets tested and you know we play with it and, and can do things with it. And so I really sort of love how it's emerged. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, But I, I got in a pretty healthy argument about it. But that's exciting. <laughs> you know, that's funny. Um, that's yeah, that's I got funny. in a pretty good argument about that. And but we we all were hearing each other. And I think you know it was like no, we all agree they should they should have the communications component. They should give credit, CE credit. But but there is a journey, and I do think we would all agree that because it's experiential, and we are really talking about wholeness and integration. It, that is not a novice set of competencies and skills. You, you can begin to, to read about it and understand it, and, but it does require practice. Yeah. And so it's, um, it, in the helping profession, they call that clinical reasoning. And, and novices are not expected to exhibit clinical reasoning. And that sounds like a hard term, and it's much more. It's really describing the wisdom, ability to bring in the technical, interpersonal process, self-awareness, and the wisdom that comes with doing and learning. And that's a quality of this. Mm-hmm. And that's partly why I'm resistant to it being part of that certification of the CFP. That's a foundational technical entry point. And then we help we help through all these other ways, through new academic programs and um, offerings. Uh, that's kind of how, that's personally how I'm sort of envisioning it. And it'll, you know, surprise us all how whatever really does happen. Yeah, I think it's a big part of it. I think the CFP is a technical change model a technical model for managing finances. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. I, I don't you know, regret having a CFP and doing that work at all. Uh, and I think it should continue. But you're right. I think you, you, you stay in your, in your unique ability, and you get better and better and better at that. And you don't need to almost sometimes feels like a land grab. You know, I want everything. And that's not how a territory thrives, is by doing that. So hopefully there's, there's a recognition. I, I will say something about all the certificates and certifications. And I resisted it for 12, my first 12, 13 years. There's something about the structure that's demanded around one of those. You don't do that lightly. And you have a continuous um, demands to maintain. And so eventually you reach a point of, of, of rigor and a point of, um, um, I don't know, uh, structure, completeness that you couldn't have gotten to if you weren't really pushed into that. It's not an easy space. And um, there are many days I wish I had never said the words uh, because of regulations and, and that kind of thing. But you know, so be it. And I think there will be more. Um, but these specialized areas of practice and with the CFP as a, as a floor, as an entry point, because people do hire financial planners for financial reasons. Mm-hmm. They walk in through the financial door. So in my point of view, you have to have that technical side. Oh, yeah. But then you integrate as best you can on the personal side and the combination, the synergy of, the, of those two halves is the human. And whatever, however you reach that expertise on each side, it's the combination. Um, and I think there's probably areas of practice that we can't even imagine right now um, that will come out because of all the technology and the way we humans live on this planet five years from now, not 50 years from mm-hmm. now. I'm reminded as you talk um, of how common this is to us. I mean, we've been baked in this. We've been hanging out together forever, 
And I remember, I don't know, 10 years ago, Elizabeth, when you told me, Rick, not everybody is like us. <laughs> and uh, I was reminded recently in the uh, course I was teaching, um, one of my students said, I've been in this business for 19 years. I have never run into anybody like you. <laughs> and, and, and we were teaching the, the emotional side. And, and I told him, I said, well, I am not that unique. <laughs> There's four or five hundred, a thousand of us nationwide that are hanging out. But it just struck me, how can somebody have been in financial planning for 19 years? and had never been exposed to what, to us, is just normal. I mean, it, it's still amazing how far we have yet to grow. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. Yes. That's the mm -hmm. truth. So looking at the history of life planning, you know, the audience for this is new planners. What would be your hope for new planners as they look forward to, you know, 40, 50 years of their career? in working, you know, in life planning, what, what would be your hope for them? They have wonderful questions to <laughs> live in, you know, um, that, that they, they plant seeds, discover seeds, and nourish them. You know, I love what Susan said about hopefully we'd get to discover that we've been building a cathedral all along, um, and another one will, will replace it. Um, as we learn, as you're saying, Rick, you know, as we learn more about how humans work and what works, um, I don't wish them no struggle because, as Susan's beautiful symbol of the butterfly, that that struggle in the what is what is that stage in the chrysalis? That the chrysalis. struggle is part of the ability to survive, and so I don't think any of us wish anything but good struggle and, in, and informative in the, in the will and the courage and the mentors and the tribe and the community to support what they need to, to emerge. I guess that's kind of what occurs to me. Yeah, I was thinking my hope for them is that they come to the struggle earlier <laughs> yeah, than, than what I did. Right. Um, I've often said that I, my, the gift to my children of the personal work that I've done is that maybe they'll be in therapy half as long. <laughs> well, I think there's a whole lot of um, intrinsic reward for financial planners that embrace this more holistic approach, whatever you want to call it. And that uh, becomes kind of the inner motivator to embrace and grow in this and uh, just bring so much more joy to their work. Um, they, you know, it's, it's really amazing to touch lives and change lives, and that in itself becomes kind of the impetus to just keep going and growing. Um, I, you know, my personality is to feel like I need to really be perfect at something before I do it and there's just you know the preparation is endless and I my um, my advice is don't do it that way <laughs> to uh, you know it's it's kind of stepping out into an unknown territory for a lot of people and um, and there's but a ton of training and support that's out there to, to help build confidence, but the most important um, quality is this caring about the client and this intention to serve them and to get to know and understand them and enter it into it, you know, with a spirit of curiosity and caring. And it's amazing that that may be the only thing you need, you know? Mm. Systems and processes are great. But it's sort of that's the bottom line. Uh, the, that's the most essential ingredients, and hopefully that will give um, individuals, planners, some confidence that it they can do it. In addition to all the beautiful things that have just been said, to come into this profession 
taking care of yourself, who you are, the person who shows up for your clients is, is essential. Learn that it's okay to not know answers. Learn to be curious. And don't push yourself so hard that you hit some kind of burnout mm -hmm. and you see your clients as distribution units or as the number of people that you need to see in the week and that sort of thing. That dehumanizes not only your practice, but y yourself. There's something very beautiful that happens in this profession that I've not seen in other professions around the world. You really have the opportunity to make a difference way beyond yourself, mm -hmm. but you can't lose yourself in the process. And that's hard in the beginning when everything is new and there's a full plate and there's always people who want more and more and more. But knowing how to keep and find your pace and keep your pace, I think that's the way you have a long life with your profession. And you get to achieve the goals that you want. That The, the burnout of the new is um, detrimental to everybody. Not that I'm speaking from experience. Was <laughs> <laughs> well, there anything that we missed? I'm sure there's plenty. <laughs> Probably go on for many hours. If you want to be a part of great conversations like these, be sure to join the FPA Activate community on Facebook. It's a growing study group for financial planning professionals, from students to firm owners, professors, and FPA board members. You'll find them all there where you too can lend your voice. We hope you'll join us and help grow the financial planning profession. Thanks for listening.